Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On this week's show, we are lucky to be joined by Gaurav Jain, co-founder of Afford Capital, one of the largest pre-seed funds in the U.S. with nearly $300 million in assets under management across three funds. Before co-founding Afford in 2016, Gaurav was a principal at top seed firm Founder Collective, and before that was an early product manager for Android. We had a really great conversation covering the pre-seed market, how the current market affects their investing thesis, and how they are able to execute on so many initiatives with such a lean team. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Hey, Gaurav, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Samir. I've been looking forward to this, so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. We're going to dig into a lot of the things that you've done, including uh, your focus on pre-seed. But before we do that, let's go through your career a little bit and what led up to starting a four with Anamitra. First-generation immigrant from India, family moved to Canada when I was in high school. Uh, that was a very formative experience to see my parents start their lives from scratch in their mid-40s with uh, barely any money, no no job, no network. Uh, it certainly instills a certain kind of work ethic uh, work ethic in you. Then I went to University of Waterloo to study software engineering. Um, you know, it was a really interesting experience. It's this interesting co-op program where you work and study every four months. I had a chance to work at different places, including BlackBerry, Amazon, Morgan Stanley, so on and so forth. But then coming out of undergrad, I actually started a company uh, that was venture-backed. Uh, that was my first exposure to venture as a founder myself. Uh, it was in the mobile space, and that brought me to the Android team in the early days uh, with the mandate to help grow market share. While I was on the Android team, we went from less than a million total users to about a million new users a day. So it's the kind of scale you only see certain places. Then I went to business school, and while I was there, I started working at this fund called Founder Collective, arguably one of the best, if not the best, uh, micro VC fund focused on seed stage. I was the first person to join the fund outside of the two founders, David Frankel and Eric Paley. That was more than 10 years ago, believe it or not. That was February 2012 uh, when I joined them. was there for a total of four and a half years, learned a lot, had a chance to invest in companies like Cruise Automation, uh, Firebase, Secure, so on and so forth. And one of the things that eventually led us to start a four was how a lot of seed funds would tell founders, right, when they're raising their first capital, that they were too early, that they should raise a million bucks, uh, launch the product, get some early traction, and then they could underwrite a three to five million dollar seed round. And very often the founders would push back and say, so hold on, so I need money to get traction, but then I need traction to get the money. Like, how do I solve this cash 22? And that kind of became the light bulb moment to start a four and focus on what start what was starting to be called pre-seed, but it wasn't as popular a term uh, as it is today, you know, six years later. And then I'd known my co-founder, uh, Anamitra, for many years prior to us starting a four. He's also a product manager. He was the first PM at Twitter, one of the first 25 employees there. Then he was at Foundation Capital, where we had a chance to get to know each other. And he was seeing something similar, right? Sort of the goalposts were shifting for founders, where the bar was higher and higher for them to raise their first round of venture capital. So in 2016, we left our previous firms, and uh, and the rest is history, as I say. You mentioned Founder Collective, which back in 2012, when you joined, was still the early days of the institutionalization of seed funds. And I remember back then, I think I counted about 150 unique seed funds out there. And now, of course, it's, it's grown. But as the industry's grown, so has the nomenclature that's used to describe rounds. And it, in, initially, it was just seed, and then it became pre-seed, post-seed, mango seed, and you had all these different terms. How do you think about 
what pre-seed actually means from a company standpoint and how do you delineate the difference between a pre-seed and a seed? Look, it's it's definitely confusing, right? And it's partially, you know, we are to blame as our other VCs because in the quest to differentiate ourselves, you know, there's all these different terms that get invented. But I think if you look at it from a founder's perspective, it's, it's actually quite simple. There are two types of rounds, right, in the early stage. There are pre-traction rounds, pre-revenue, pre-product you know, product market fit, pre-really everything. That's one type of round. And the other type of round is sort of post-traction, right? You've launched a product, there's some commercial signals flowing through the company, maybe there's some early signs of revenue, and you're looking to now scale the business, right? So those are sort of two, uh, two very distinct type of rounds, but underlying that, it, it, the risk that you're taking as an investor is very different. The way you diligence the company is very different. And so that's sort of how we look at the world. And to us, pre-seed is very much in that former category where we are very comfortable going in, you know, quote unquote, when others would say it's too early, right? But too early, what they're really saying is there's not enough meat on the bone for me to, to underwrite this deal, for me to have conviction to lead the round, right? For me to say, this is one of five companies I'm going to invest in this year, right? That is that is what investors are really telling you as a founder. So for us, that sort of pre-seed is, and the reason we started the fund in the first place is because we saw that gap, right? Not so much in capital. There certainly was a lot of capital even at the, at the pre-seed stage, but very few investors who were willing to lead the round, who were willing to have that conviction to say, I will price this deal. I will write 80% of the capital and let's go get angels and so on and so forth. That was the biggest challenge for founders that we look to solve with, with the four. So anyway, that's sort of how I would, I would you know, paint the landscape. I'm, I'm really curious to hear, because you did bring up this notion of risk, which I do think when you're looking at a company that frankly doesn't have much traction, may not even have a product fully built out, it's, it's just a little bit more difficult to underwrite versus having a first cohort where there's you know, successful revenue traction. How do you think about underwriting risk when there's just not much to look at? If you were to force rank, these are the things that we look at, both qualitatively and maybe even to a degree quantitatively. What does that underwriting process look like from a pre-seed investment standpoint? We're still learning every day. And, and, and you know, we've had six years of experience now and, and an opportunity to look back and, and, and decisions that we've made right and decisions that we got wrong. So, so we're still getting better at this. But here's what we've learned right, in the last six years. First of all, I think the diligence process and framework is very different, right, at this stage than the post-traction stage. I think that's why it's hard to straddle, frankly, multi-stage, right? Because you can't in the same day look at a company that has these commercial signals flowing through versus ones that don't. So we have exclusively decided to focus on companies that are, you know, pre-revenue, pre-traction, pre-launch, and so on and so forth. So what do we look for, right? Well, we have found is the most helpful is actually focusing very much on the short term, not the long term, which I know is a little bit counterintuitive because if you're a VC, it's a power law business. You're, you know a few companies are going to be fund drivers. You're looking for that massive outcome. Small outcomes actually don't really move the dial, right? A 5x, 10x, $100, 200000000 million outcome is not what we, why we're in this business. But what we find is actually in the diligence process, that is exactly what you want to focus on, right? What you want to understand is, what do the next 12 to 18 months look like for this company? Can this company get to first base, right? Of course, we have a point of view on how they get to second base and third base and so on and so forth. But that is 
really hard to have insight, have, have clarity on. And frankly, if you look at some of the best companies, even the founders couldn't have predicted how big this could have been, right? So obviously as an investor, I, I, I certainly can't, right? If you look at Uber's first pitch deck, right? They talk about the TAM being like $4.2 billion or something, right? Of course, you know, the company does tens of billions in, in, in VMB today. So, so what we really try to understand is, you know, in the next 12 months, who are, let's say it's a B2B company, who are the customers they're going to go after? Why would they buy the product? Are the budgets there or not? And in fact, we make a list, right, in our diligence process, whether that's through some of the introductions that founders may make, or a lot of times it's back channel, to say, here are companies that we think will buy this product. And I've already done sort of a soft pitch with the buyer to say, if I was to come pitch you this product, would you at least entertain that pitch? Now, of course, whether they buy or not, it's still a risk that we take. But we have a lot of confidence that this company will get to some early signs of traction. And we do think this is the team that can then go from strength to strength, right? That can take that early traction, raise more capital, typically a Series A, and then parlay that into more traction and so on and so forth. So if we get the, the, the 12 to 18 months wrong, that's on us. That's, that's a failure in the diligence process. And we've had some of that before, and that's how we're trying to get better. But... If the company's not able to go from first base to second base or third base, you know, as successfully, that sometimes is a, just a risk that we can't, you know, we can't, you know, it's unknowable at our at our stage. Something I'd love to get your take on is this ongoing debate in terms of pre-seed firms, and I heard this from a lot of LPs, that they fear that many of these pre-seed firms may not be able to capture some of the top entrepreneurs because some of those entrepreneurs that are starting may have had success before and can jump right to seed, or in, in some cases are getting funded by a tier one brand name firm that's writing a check that's large enough to make that seed or pre-seed large enough to kind of feel like a traditional Series A. And I know the markets have, of course, materially changed, but what have you seen in practice and how do you defend against a market where some of the most experienced founders may not necessarily take that one to $2 million round? So first of all, we think it's great that founders have tons of options at the early stage. Obviously, fewer options today, you know, given what's happening in the macro, but still, you know, quite a few options. But the, the archetype that we focus on is very, very specific. It tends to be a first-time founder, right, or a founder that certainly hasn't had a big exit in the past, hasn't made money for investors in the past. They're, as we talked about earlier, haven't launch the product, have no traction, so on and so forth. There's a lot of risk from whether this will work. It tends to also be in markets or use cases that are fairly niche to begin with. And this is, again, our going back to the market analysis may not be so obvious at our stage. But we can see the use case. We can see the short-term appetite for this product. And then, again, we have conviction that this becomes bigger. So that is the kind of founder and the company we're looking for. And those are founders that you know don't have an easy time right? Raising a couple million bucks at a fair price right out of the gate. Now, there are type of, there are a set of founders who have had success in the past, right? Or perhaps have just a very strong resume, I don't know, first engineer at Stripe or something. Those tend to be not a good fit for us because they can walk into a multi-billion dollar fund and collect a $5 million check at 50 post. And that's great for them. It's not the kind of investment we're looking for. In fact, there are founders who we had backed in our previous lives who are now starting companies, who are successful founders, not starting companies. And we've invested in those companies, but they've been very much non-core investments. Why? Because the price 
that they were going to raise their first round as was way beyond what is, you know, what fits our strategy or the allocation that we could get was relatively small relative to what we're looking for. So we still invest in those companies because of the relationship, but that is not the bread and butter of the business. The bread and butter of the business is first time founder very early looking to raise a million to two million bucks, looking to dilute 10 to 20 percent enough capital to get them to the next set of milestones. Another, you know, sort of interesting point to consider is if you think about the proliferation of seed funds, and, and some are doing pre-seed as as part of their strategy, many of them actually get pushed to doing consensus deals because the risk of those companies not getting the next round of capital is lower, given, you know, if it's a you crypto in the in in the past or areas that are hot. You have described something that's a little bit more non-consensus, right? A non-consensus founder, maybe a non-consensus area. How do you mitigate, from your perspective, the risk of those companies getting follow-on capital from those Series C, Series A investors when they start off as so non-consensus? Yeah, look, and this is part of where I'm a little biased, but we think we can help, right? Because fundraising at least in the early you know, days, the first few rounds, is a lot of storytelling, right? The data, you know, certainly there's no data at our stage, but there's some data at Series A, but not a lot. It's still not obvious, and it might not be for a long period of time. And not every founder is good at storytelling, right? Not every founder understands what they should be focusing on, right? And it almost sometimes, you know, the story you tell to VCs is very different than perhaps, you know, how you're executing day to day, because VCs want to hear certain things, right? Especially Series A and B in terms of how big this can be and, and so on and so forth. And of course, you're executing on a more short-term basis, you know, in the business. You're trying to close the next deal and not perhaps, you know, focusing on the on the 10-year vision. So because, you know, we at any point of time have a half a dozen companies trying to raise a Series A or B, we just get a lot of signals and data back, right? On what it takes to to have a successful engineer, successful round. Right. So if you look at some of our stats from, from the last six years, like 60, 70 percent of the companies that have raised a follow-on round, we made the introduction, you know, we were we knew both sides of the equation and we we knew exactly sort of how to how to run the process. And, and we run a boot camp um, you know, for, for a few weeks when founders are ready to raise a raise a round to say, hey, look, let's not just go out there and and wing it. Right? It's not it's not gonna work. I think we have to do many reps, right, first internally on both the narrative, the deck, and so on and so forth. And then even the actual process, you run it in, in waves, right, where you talk to some friendlies first, get some feedback. I mean, we have to fundraise ourselves, right, for the fund every few years. So we kind of know how, how it's how it's done, and, and we run this the same process for ourselves. So so we try to help, right, the founders quite a bit because, you know, the founders are very much focused on building a business and not fundraising. Fundraising is a means to an end, right? That doesn't in and of itself make a successful company. So so I think investors are on, on the cap table that are institutional in nature can 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 help in this. But I think where where we can where also helps to raise a pre-seed is, you know, with a couple million bucks, you can have some commercial signals flowing through that the investors can then come around, right? So what I've seen many times is Series A funds, right? have seen the company at the stage where we ended up investing in first, passed, right? But then came around and said, ah, now that I see the data going through, now that I see customers closing contracts, I see the ACV increasing, I see retention, now I get it, right? Now I see how this can be really big, right? So that is, we find the risk profile changes quite dramatically, right? In that zero to one phase, in that first 12 to 18 months of the company, when they can show some momentum. That's the other thing where we look to work very closely with the founders is getting to 
them to first million ARR. And they might not get to full million before they're ready to raise a Series A, but we have a dedicated resource that, that is measured on did we help close deals for our founders? That could be design partners, pilots, or full customer contract, who literally goes into the CRM with the founders, writes the copy for outbound campaigns, joins the pitch meetings, and really ha- sort of helps the company and the founders close their first few deals. But because what we found is, at least this was the case in the last year, year and a half, maybe it changes a little bit, but companies that are able to generate early momentum, right? They have a much higher chance of being able to fundraise, regardless of like whether the the market is quote unquote niche or, or hot. It's like if you can show some early momentum, that success begets success. And I think if we can help them, you know, sort of create that, uh, accelerate that, that we've found is increased odds of being able to, to fundraise. And then of course that increases the odds of then being able to get to second base and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean there'll be a massive outcome overall. There's a lot of things that have to go right, but at least you're you you know you're on the right path. You mentioned raising this $150 million fund three, which gives you fresh capital to deploy in a market now that has changed, although at least historically, the least impacted part of the market has been pre-seed and seed when you look relative to what's happening in the public markets. And I think over time that you know starts to impact to a certain degree. As of right now, how are you thinking about your portfolio construction? Are you reserving more capital given that downstream capital, be it the seed and Series A funds, may be more selective and require higher degree of proof points before they invest? You know, we're very first principles driven, right? And, you know, we've been doing this for six, six years or so with the four, and feels like we're sort of like a third era or something. You know, there was the the before COVID era, right? Four years or so, let's call it BC. And then there was the after COVID the last couple of years. And now it seems like we're kind of post-pandemic, perhaps the the third era. And the macro is going to continue to stay volatile. I think it's really hard for us to constantly be changing strategy based on what's happening in the macro. So we've, we've stuck very much with first principles. What does that mean? We think uh, founders, and again, I, it's very much we're talking about mostly software companies, venture backable companies, so on and so forth. That those kind of founders need million to million dollars, right? That's actually been the case, frankly, for the last couple of decades, right? If you look at Amazon, right, twenty what twenty almost thirty years ago when they started, they raised a million bucks, right, um, to get started. Now, back in the day, the costs were a lot more around data centers, infrastructure, so on and so forth. Perhaps talent was cheaper. Today, infrastructure is close to zero, but talent is expensive. But what's interestingly, you need kind of the same amount of money, Airbnb, Uber, so on and so forth. They all raised a million, $2 million to, to, get, off the, to get off the ground. We think that's not going to change, right? Um, we think that amount stays the same. And where we want to play a role is to be that lead investor in that round, to be the catalyst that helps that round come together, right? So that may look like a million, million and a half dollars, and then bring in some angels, perhaps, you know, syndicate leads and so on and so forth, you know, operators that are running funds, those tend to be co-investors for us. And then give them enough capital so they can be heads down for 18 to 24 months. So they can then demonstrate that early traction to be able to unlock more capital. That recipe, we don't think changes regardless of the of the macro. Um you know, and, and that's been the strategy for us at a four over the last six and, six and a half years, even though the fund size has increased, you know, about 3x with fund one. The only thing that changed was with fund one, you know, we were writing 1% of the fund in the first round. So they were like four or $500,000. It increased a little bit towards the tail end of the fund. 
But then the, the founders would have to find more co-investors to complete the round. With fund two, as we increase the size to about 78, we started writing 750K to a million dollar checks. So founders had to find fewer co-investors to fill up the round. And now with the $150 million fund, we can take more of that round, but we can also scale back, right? In cases where there are strategic angels that founders want to bring on board, but we have that flexibility such that when a four is in, the founders know fundraising is off the table. They are done, right? So we will cut back whatever is necessary to bring in angels they really want, but we can also take up the entirety of the round. So I think that is the product that we're, we're, we're selling to founders and that we don't think changes. Now, of course, the graduation rate may fluctuate. Certainly what we expect to change is the, <clears throat> the Series A price, right? I think what we saw was the price for pre-seeds was also increasing, right, in the last six to 12 months. Um, you know, to give you some numbers, the median pre-money for Fund 1 was $5.9 million, right? The median pre-money for Fund 2 was about six and a half. But in the last six to 12 months, that number was certainly closer to, to $10, 12000000 million, right? And <clears throat> so we had to write a bigger check to get the same ownership. And in a lot of cases, we had to settle for slightly lower ownership that we would like. But it was, it was was we were being compensated because the Series A prices had gone up far faster, right, than the prices at pre-seed. Now, I think that comes back. Right? So we have to be very thoughtful around price that we're willing to pay for, for pre-seeds to make sure we're not putting undue risk on the company where they struggle to raise an extra round because, you know, the Series A numbers have changed. And we want to make sure that, Founders raise enough capital in the world where the Series A bar goes up and they need to show more traction, more de-risking before they can unlock any capital that they're not in a position where they're having to fundraise with the backs against their wall, where they've made some progress, but not enough progress. Those are the worst places to be, right? Where you know things are going right, right? Where you're making progress. As a founder, you see why this is going to work. But you need a few more months to unlock the capital. And I think what we've seen even in the in the last few years where, you know, there's been a lot of capital in the system is there has been a tale of two cities, right? There are some deals that are so hot, they have 12 term sheets. And there's some companies that just can't raise a dollar for their life dependent on it. Even in a world where, and this was frustrating because sometimes we talk to the founders, they're like, but my friends are all like raising at 150 posts with less traction. What am I doing wrong? Right? How do I get those get those term sheets? And it's like, look, I think with a few more months, you can. Here are the risks that the the VC, that's keeping the VCs back, and we we need a little bit more time to to de-risk that. So I think I think they just have to raise more capital, um, you know, upfront, so they can they can get to those milestones. Let's pull that thread a little bit, and let's say a company does one of your companies raises more more capital upfront, and instead of eighteen months, they get twenty four months of cash. But at the end of the twenty four months. The market is still chilly, and for whatever reason, the external market of next round funders simply just don't believe the company has hit the inflection points necessary to put capital in. How do you make the determination at a four in when you actually do an inside round, or at least put more capital before a new lead comes in versus not? So I'd say like when the 18 months or whatever time comes up, there are sort of three types of companies, right? One that have been getting a lot of inbound from investors. And, and frankly, some are even in this environment, right? Because investors are saying, wow, like maybe I can get a good deal in this company that's always been on my radar. It's a really interesting space. I have a thesis, like a lot of serious investors tend to be very thesis driven, right? So they back into what companies they want to be investing in, right? And the question is, can they get the allocation, the price and so on and so forth? So there are a set of companies that are, that, are, that have been hot and they probably will continue to be hot even in, in, in any environment. 
Then there's a second set of companies that you know, we were just talking about, which is they made progress, but perhaps not enough progress to be able to unlock that round. Uh, even at any price, right? What we find is it's not like if I'm willing to raise at a lower price, I can get a top tier firm. Top tier firms, are, they're a lot of times price insensitive in the last day, as long as it's the right right company. So, so, so there, you know, the question we ask ourselves is, um, with a little bit more capital, with a little bit more time, are they going to be able to unlock that capital, or is this a bridge to nowhere, right? Because what you don't want is, of course, put good money after bad, but more importantly. It's the time of the founders. It's the opportunity cost for the founders, frankly, that is a lot more painful than even us losing money, right? We have a diversified portfolio. Honestly, if you lose a little bit more, I hate losing money, but we're in, we're in business of taking risk. But founders wasting another six months, 12 months, many years of their prime, you know, prime time of their career, like that, that's, that's a shame. So, so we we are very uh, trying to be very honest, intellectual honest to ourselves and to the founders. Like, is this truly going to be a bridge to a, a Series A or or not? And there are a set of companies that are the third bucket where, look, it's it's very strong founders, usually technical, you, you know, um, have great backgrounds, but maybe it was just not the right idea, and they try a couple of different ideas, some adjacencies, and it's just not clicking, right? And in those cases, we've helped engineer kind of a soft landing. Right. In fact, we have a couple that are happening right now where we'll just have a portfolio company, right? Um, uh, you know, take them in as an aqua hire, or they will give them really solid offers. And these, these processes can happen very efficiently because, again, both sides of the equation, you know, we're on text messaging with them. So we can help engineer that to say, hey, look, you know, the founders get a chance to find a soft landing, get great offers for themselves and a couple of their team members they have. And these teams are relatively small, right? Because in 18 months, they've only raised a couple of couple million dollars. They don't have massive teams. Might be a few engineers um, that are very easy, frankly, for our other portfolio companies to pick up. Right. Um, so we can help them run a process, get a few offers, and then see sort of what happens. Uh, so that, and again, we try to be very intellectually honest here because it's easy for us to just throw some money just to save these companies. We think they might be able to pull something off, but it's not going to work. Another six months is just not going to change anything. Yeah, and, and I think you do have to be intellectually honest. And I, and I love the point that you brought up in terms of the, uh, the founder opportunity cost of not languishing in a in a company that effectively might not be anything more than mediocre and taking away their ability to maybe do something else that's right for them and, you know, their families. You know, as we think about going back to the the fund three, one of the things that I noticed that you recently launched was the alpha product, which effectively is providing startups a million dollars at a $10 million capped post money safe. And why was this a new product? What did you see as the opportunity for here? And what are you looking to solve? You know, with the alpha product, we've tried to standardize and productize, if you may, the A4 offer, right? In some ways, we've been practicing this since day one, but it was it was not clear to founders exactly how we practiced it. So, uh, and it's really based on the learning and experience that Anamitra and I have had, you know, 10 plus years each being in venture. And what we've learned is that founders at the inception stage are looking for three things, right? One, they're looking for a meaningful check that can get them to product market fit, right? Raise enough capital so they can be heads down and they can build, not just raise for three months or six months. So the meaningful check is number one. Second thing they're looking for is fair and transparent terms, right? They're looking for an offer that 
fairly values their company, but also don't play games with me, right? For a lot of first-time founders, like VCs have a bad rep and sometimes maybe well well deserved, right? So I think being transparent about that and being very upfront is something that founders really value. That's a third thing is they're looking to partner with folks that will prioritize them for whom this is not an option, then, right? Because for founders, they're all in, right? They're, they're a lot more all in than we are, right? But again, we have a diversified portfolio. The founders don't, right? They, a lot of times, have given up very lucrative jobs and, and really bet the farm to, to start this company. So they're looking for part, to partner with people that, that feel that same level of conviction. So if you looked at those three things, and then we looked at what options founders had. Um, there are obviously some great accelerators out there. But we, what we were hearing from founders, so they, they would tell us that, look, these 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 accelerators are offering me, let's say, 125K for 7%. That's effectively valuing my company at like 1.8 million, 3 million post money, right? That in 2022 just doesn't feel fair because if I can raise in three months at at 20 posts, like how, how did the company suddenly go 10x more valuable in, in three months? It just it feels off. And then, of course, you know, pro rata rights in the future and so on and so forth. So the, the terms in and of itself and a lot of these um, these programs just weren't, weren't uh, resonating with, with founders, especially ones that felt that they can raise money at a much higher price. And then the other option for them is these multi-stake funds, multi-billion dollar funds that would give you a better terms, but that they won't make you a clarity, right? You, you tend to be an option that you tend to be... Uh, uh, hey, I, I'm, I'm interested in this thesis and I'll give you some money, see how you do, and then maybe I'll decide if I want to underwrite the Series A. Of course, it has signaling effect, but more importantly, you're just not going to get the resources that the platform has, right? That they advertise because you're just too small of an investment for them. They're not going to lose sleep if things are going sideways like the way we do. So we said, hey, look, how do we how about we design a product that really captures everything the founders looking for, those three things that I identified? So we felt a million dollars, right? And the round could be a million and a half to a million, because usually founders want to bring in angels. And we can scale up our check size as well. But let's say a million dollars is meaningful enough where you know you can you can make a good progress. 10 million post money. Again, we can argue in this market, that market is 10 the right number, is it 15, is it five? Look, it's very subjective, right? At our stage, it's not about multiples because revenue is zero. So there's no multiples that I can, no DCF I can build to figure out what the value of the company is. But we felt that it's more a function of dilution. So 1 million and 10 million cap means 10% dilution, right? So if you raise 15, if the 1.5 million total, you're, you're diluting yourself 15%, which we felt was was fair, right? I don't think founders should sell 30%, but also 5% for, for a couple of million bucks for, for these kind of founders felt you know, unfair to the investors. So we felt that the number was was kind of the right one. And then we'll prioritize you. So we, we're not a factory. There's not a thousand companies that we're investing in through this program. We'll invest in 10 to 15 companies a year, right? So as a team, so we can really dedicate our resources around go-to-market that we were talking about earlier, around recruiting, around helping you with fundraising through our Series A bootcamp and so on and so forth. We can truly unlock those those um, those resources for you. Uh, so I think I think that that was the essence of the Alpha program. In some ways, again, we've been doing this for for, for since day one, but we wanted to sort of make that very um, very clear cut, uh, and that's really resonated with the founders. I realize that it's not an accelerator. It's it's very much core to how you've always worked with founders in terms of one on one support and productization of things. Often helps makes th- things very simple. It removes a lot of the friction layers. But there's also the uh, other aspect that is non-financial in terms of how you productize the offering to the founder for them to take your check. What is necessary to actually execute on this strategy? And have you built the team? Have you built the community to really enable this at scale? We've 
learned over time that founders in the zero to one phase, right, are, are looking for four key things, right? So we, we have this platform, we call it Build, uh, for Build. Um, and it has sort of four key pillars, right? Uh, the first one is around recruiting, right? For a lot of these founders, you know, they need to hire their first few engineers, which certainly was very hard at last 12 to 18 months, maybe it gets a little easier, but probably not, right? Because while, um, you know, engineers had many offers in the last 12 months. Now the challenge is the other the other way, which is like, should I really leave my cushy job to join this, you know, dinky little startup? So recruiting is going to be a challenge for early stage startups, regardless of the, the macro. So we, we run essentially a marketplace where we connect folks looking to join early stage startups with founders in our portfolio and sort of do this, do this match. And then more importantly, like helping those potential employees feel comfortable you know, taking this, taking this leap, right? For a lot of them, it's the first time, right? They're going to join a startup and they've seen, they've heard these stories of people becoming millionaires, right? From joining, but they've also heard stories of, you know, their options being underwater and so on and so forth. And, and, and a lot of times your spouse is telling you it's a terrible idea. So how do you get them to be comfortable and understand the risks and the pros and cons, right? So recruiting is tends to be a, a big area where we, we, we help. Not the VP of sales, right? Not the CRO. That tends to be sort of that post-series A stage. That is not where we focus. We focus on how do we get you the first AE, right? What should the AE to SDR ratio be? And so thinking through some of those very early stage challenges. The second one tends to be on go-to-market. Right? As we were talking about earlier, one of the insights we've had is it's really important for companies to be able to demonstrate early traffic, right? Because that ends up becoming a virtuous cycle in so many ways, right? Whether that's capital, acquiring, you know, uh, attracting talent, whether that's learning, right? Learning tends to be a big part of it, right? Because best companies in our portfolio are just learning machines, right? Founders are just, every time you talk to them, it can be, you know, every week you talk to them, they're just unlock some new insight, right? Because they're spending time with customers, because their product is out in the wild. So so we have a dedicated resource to really help with um with you know, with making helping make progress on the on the go-to-market side. With the fundraising, right, for for a lot of founders, raising that series A is quite overwhelming, right? It's daunting. It's you know you've heard of these uh storied firms, you know, Sequoia, Excel, Benchmark One and so forth, but you've you, you know, you've you've never pitched to them, and 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 these GPs that you read blog posts about or hear them a podcast. Now you're in front of them, right? Telling them, uh, you know, sharing your story, and and they're they're asking questions and poking holes, right? So, helping them through that process, and and a lot of it tends to be emotional and mental as well, right? Not just not just the logical. Uh, and the fourth is building the community, right? We find that some of the best people to learn from are people that are just a little bit ahead of you, right? It, you know, it, we can connect a, a, an early stage founder who just started with with a, with a founder who was running a unicorn company, but they tend to be in such different worlds that it's just not the best, you know, peer to learn from. We find so we run these sessions very regularly with founders that have just raised a series A, right? With founders that are about to raise a series A. And we find that is the best match, not founders that are running a series D company. And because for them, that memory of series A usually tends to be fairly rosy. Oh, it wasn't that hard. I don't know, series D is really hard, but series A was, was a piece of cake. But the folks that have just gone through that process, it tends to be a lot more raw and authentic. And we tend to keep these sessions, you know, closed room, uh, we don't record them and so on and so forth. The folks can be truly authentic. And I think that community, um, ends up becoming very, very powerful. And this is where, because we're lead investors, you know, founders associate themselves with as an F4 company versus, you know, if we were just a small check as part of a syndicate, 
again, it's hard for founders to have that have that connection. So we run both a Slack community, even Google in a group. We have we run RL sessions. We do stuff obviously these days virtually. So we really try to you know help founders connect with each other, and I think that tends to be a really big way they they find support. Having tracked you guys from really the beginning, and I remember our first conversation back in 2016 and 17 when you were launching the firm, there was always a very clear line to me that you were going to do a lot of things and really punch above your weight, both in terms of the type of founder support you were going to provide, but just generally speaking, all the things you were doing in building the firm. And of course, now you have the alpha program, you've done an emerging manager type of cohort, you've done an analytics platform, you spend a lot of time doing workshops. And one of the questions that often will come up when people are listening to this is how do you have the time to do all of these things? And, you know, especially right now where founders just might need more support to get over both emotionally the market as well as maybe the increased difficulty of acquiring more capital to keep going. How does your day-to-day look in terms of your time spent and of course, you still have your LPs. You have to build the uh, the firm and do everything necessary to run a firm. It's a really good point. And I think as a as an emerging manager, uh, before we started the fund, I don't think we fully internalized uh, what we were taking on, right? Because we were both investors before, but we were investors in firms that were already really successful. So we didn't have to spend as much time fundraising, right? Trying to build a brand, arena you know, content. So we could truly focus on deals, right? We could truly focus on companies sourcing diligence and then supporting those companies that is where majority of our day is spent but now a, a good portion of our day is spent doing non-company stuff right for all of those reasons that you you identified and time management frankly has been one of those things we're still trying to get better at right i, I can't tell you that we have nailed it but we try to uh be again very intellectually honest internally to understand to figure out like what is what should be priority what shouldn't be priority where should we be spending our time and where should we start such that it becomes a domino effect, right? What is sort of the core, what's the most important thing in the in the business? Because everything seems to be important, but where, where do we still spend our time? And the nice thing is Anamitra and I are both product managers, right, from our background. So we think everything in terms of product. And we find that the only way to scale our time is to think in, in, in ways that amplifies the work we do, right? So... This idea with the the program that you alluded to, right, which we ran this um, uh, three-month program helping aspiring and emerging managers, right, that are going from angel investors to raising first-time funds, we ran this program to help them make that leap, right? And we obviously did that ourselves, and we brought brought in a lot of guests. But part of the uh, motivation for us to do that is because these are the folks that we're co-investing with. These are the folks that are our best source of deal flow. And we said, hey, look, if we create more value for them if we because sometimes people would push back and say hold on aren't you helping create more competition for yourselves and we don't really think of it that way we think of and even if they're some of them will end up becoming competitors that's fine right i think if it's lot there's lots and lots of wood to chop here there are a lot of great companies that frankly don't get funded because there's not enough investors willing to 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 really step up and and, and lead the round so but we felt that the pros still outweigh the cons for us right if we can help nurture this community we will see more deals Right, as part of that, so we could spend time, but you know, get coffee with each of these investors one on one, or we could run this program where now we're top of mind for them, and we still run the Slack community where they, you know, communicate with each other, and of course, all of that is done via the Afore platform. So, of course, Afore is a fun benefit. And the same thing, you can look at a whole bunch of other things we've done. Right, um, the Alpha program is the same thing. Right, it is um, we we launched this product, which then 
helps us, you know, source a lot more deals that we could have just one-on-one. And now, you know, a lot of deals are coming internationally, which is great. We've always wanted to invest more internationally. We find that the, the resonance of pre-seed is stronger the farther away you go from Silicon Valley because it's harder and harder to find believers that will write seven-figure checks before companies have anything. But, it, you know, sit, both of us are sitting in Silicon Valley or a team of eight is mostly in the U.S. It is not trivial for us to sort deals in Latin America and Africa and Asia, right? So how do we do that? So this product has really helped us, helped us achieve that. So we're always thinking of ways to do things scalably. Again, we haven't solved all of them, uh, but but it is it, time management. I'd say is like the number one thing you have to get right as an emerging manager, because um, you know uh, one side of it you feels like, look, I've got to fundraise, right? Because if I don't have money to, to deploy, like no point being really good at sourcing. So sure, you should spend a lot of time in LP management, you know, top of the funnel, nurturing your existing LPs. But then you're like, well, hold on, LPs are not going to invest if I don't have a great track record and a great investment. So I should go run and do more sourcing and pick better. But then you're like, well, founders are not going to come to me if, I, if they don't if they haven't heard of me. Yet. So I got to go build a brand and I got to gotta like do more content writing and I got to host more events. I, it, 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 you know, you should go crazy trying to run from one more, and, and all of them are important, right? So, so I think it's really important for emerging managers to understand what their strengths are, right? Because, uh, you know, some people are really good at content. Some people are really good at IRL. Some people are really good at different things, maybe portfolio supports on and so forth. So think of where your strengths are. Really lean into that. I think that is how you differentiate, right? I think it this is a we believe focus really matters in venture as there there will be inevitably more competition right across venture but certainly in the early stages it, that that you know genie's out of the bottle i think there will be more funds funds will get bigger you know uh, despite of this macro um, and i think the only way for for us to win and compete is to focus on our nation just aspire to be really the best at it yeah and there's a lot of things that I actually pull out of your your answer. Number one, it's your your time management is going to be evolutionary as you as you grow as a firm as things change in terms of what founders need, the macro. But ultimately, the things that you have done, whether it's been the emerging manager cohort, the alpha fund in terms of productizing and offering, these are things that really provide real leverage when it comes to sourcing, access, looking at opportunities and being able to pick from a great source of companies. And I think that is something that a lot of people over time will figure out how to get leverage from the network, as well as, you know, process and product. I, I want to end with maybe one question, you know, and everybody's that's been in the business for long enough, ultimately is going to build a incredible anti-portfolio. And you have an analytics tool, as well as all of these experiences looking at companies. And what I often like to ask people is, what are some of those companies that you can look back on and say, I missed it, but I had a definitive learning from that that helped with my continuous improvement as a VC? Can you maybe point to an example or two and what you ultimately learned? Yeah, unfortunately, there are several companies uh, in that bucket. And you know, we have an anti-portfolio channel in our Slack where we, every time one of these companies raises a round that's uh, north of $10 million, that's when we sort of think that this has become, starting to become an anti-portfolio company. We put that in Slack and then um, every whoever posts the company has to then opine, what did we do wrong, right? Why did we get this wrong? What could we have done better? And then everybody else sort of chimes in. So it becomes a learning opportunity for us. And look, we definitely um, are, are pretty tough on ourselves every time there's a company we miss. But we also have to realize at the end of the day that we are trying to 
you know, investing companies that have, you know, first time founders, no traction, no, no clear signals that this will work. And we, you know, we look at uh, three to four, three to 4,000 companies a year, right? A bit across all our programs, we only get to invest in 10 to 50. So inevitably there will be things that we miss sometimes because we, we, ha- we find them interesting, but perhaps not interesting enough. Right. So, and those are, those tend to be ones where, you know, we, we miss them. So, so anyway, so, so do we think anti-portfolio is just part of the, a part of the business? Uh, I'd say the learnings have been a few things. Um, the, the biggest one that comes to mind is when we've been too regimented on like terms and exactly how the deal is going to look. Right. So there's an example of a company where um, we did all the work, we did all the diligence, we 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 offered them to lead the round, and they accepted, um, but they would not give us pro rata rights, right? And we just got hung up. And we're like, well, pro rata rights that standard. If we don't get that, we're not going to do the deal. You know, and look, I, I think it's easy for us to look back now and say we should have done the deal because it ended up becoming a unicorn. But in the moment, we felt like we have to be consistent, right, with these companies and. I think the learning there is like, look, in some ways, companies are snowflakes. And it's not to say we're not going to take product rights, but I think we have to be flexible sometimes in terms. Or maybe a company that doesn't exactly fit the post money that we're looking for ownership, maybe the ownership is slightly lower, be flexible on, on still investing in that company. I think the other theme is when we have just failed to imagine, right, how big this could be, right? So perhaps we had some conviction on this can get, you know, um, off the ground, but we just didn't feel like this was going to be interesting enough beyond that. Right? I think a lot of times the founders just surprise us, right? Because the founders evolved and grew in ways that we just couldn't have predicted. And this is part of the challenge of, hopefully this gets better, but the last year, year and a half, the diligence timelines have been so compressed that forget looking at like, you know, a, 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 a multiple dots, this, even the snapshot is like, you just got to blink, you know, you just got to, you know, you got like, a few hours, you got to make a call, and we, sometimes we don't even get a chance enough to back channel the founders, and you have to make the decision one way or the other. And you know, if you end up passing, what you what you fail to see is how this founder can evolve and learn. Right? Uh, maybe they didn't they didn't back channel as well because perhaps they were not a good you know employee fit, but perhaps they would be a really good founder. Right? Um, so I think those are sort of themes where we've we've missed stuff. Uh, there's been there's been many of them, um, unfortunately. But we're, we're we're constantly you know trying to get better at this, and this is where we think focus matters, right? Because this is it's only one thing we do, and, and and so that diligence framework can be very consistent, right, on what we should be looking for. I always ask that question a little bit tongue in cheek because I know even the very best investors that have been in the business long enough are going to have a lengthy anti-portfolio that's always a little bit painful to look at. I really appreciate all the thoughts today. Thank you for being on and congrats on all of the early success and all the things that you're in process of building. Thanks for having me, Samir. This was a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Garoth and Afford Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. Also, check out ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital.